Father, that is our uh, prayer this morning. Not only a song, but also our prayer that uh, we would be overcome by your presence. And God, that we would settle for nothing less. Uh, that um, mundane ritualism uh, does not satisfy. Only that which satisf satisfies is engaging uh, with you. And God, I pray that we experience you this morning uh, through the word. So I pray that you would take the scripture that is going to be preached and that you would place it in our hearts, making us more like your son, Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you for how you're working and what you're doing in our midst. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. And you brought a Bible with you. Say yes this morning. And let me invite you to open it with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. Very blessed. You know, James is actually on the mission trip this week as well. And uh, we're blessed to have RJ, who's been an intern with James for quite some time, who's helping lead worship this morning. So, RJ, we do appreciate you, brother. But this morning, I'm going to talk to you on the subject. I began it a couple of weeks ago on just simply let's give. This is kind of the second part. And Luke chapter 16 is quite an interesting uh, text of scripture where Jesus magnifies the reality of hell. Nothing like coming off a of vacation and coming right out of the gate preaching on hell. Can I get a witness on that? And so uh, that's where we are today, and that's what I have the privilege to preach. So Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 16, stand with me in honor of God's word this morning. And the Bible says, Jesus speaking, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And there was a poor man named Lazarus who was laid at his gate covered with sores, longing to be fed from the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I'm in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus his bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Now, use it for the furtherance of your kingdom, challenging us as believers to give ourselves to the mission of making disciples, challenging also those who do not know you personally, that they would come into a relationship with you before it is too late. God, you are the author of salvation. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. 
And only by your grace can an individual come into the kingdom. So we ask that you, uh, by your compassion, would reach out to the stubborn, perhaps rebellious heart that is among us today and draw them to yourself. And God, we trust that you will continue to work in our midst. We thank you for the salvations that we've had the opportunity to hear about and experience over the past week. Thank you for those who will be baptized next hour because they've come to know you personally. Help us as a church to rejoice when individuals come into the kingdom. And then, Father, I pray that we would grow in the knowledge of your word and be passionately pursuing those who are outside of the kingdom. And we'll give you glory for it. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. So you can be seated. Well, we've heard Jesus speak in Luke chapter 15 and verse 16 about the joy that angels have, the joy that God experiences, as well as the joy that a genuine convert of Jesus Christ experiences when someone comes into the kingdom. Now, he challenges his disciples, as well as you and I, in chapter 16, to invest the wealth which God has given us in the advancement of the gospel on the earth. And in doing so, disciples will help others hear the gospel and also remain focused on the mission of Jesus to make disciples everywhere. See, disciples of Jesus should have an ever-increasing love for Jesus. You and I as followers of Christ should also experience an ever-increasing generosity toward the mission of Jesus Christ. And we should also be experiencing an ever-increasing joy in seeing people come into the faith. Now, in chapter 16 and verse 1, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And then in chapter 16 and verse 14, the Pharisees enter into the conversation. Now, the Pharisees, we've learned a lot about the Pharisees so far in our study of Luke's gospel. But there are a few words that I just want to bring to your attention to kind of use to describe the lifestyle of the Pharisees just by way of introduction this morning. First of all, we know the Pharisees were self-righteous individuals. They had a feeling of smug superiority because of their supposed moral keeping of the law of God. They believed that they were good enough to impress the Lord and thereby good enough to enter into the kingdom of God. But it was all based upon a man's work righteousness, a self-made religious system whereby they could elevate themselves and brag on their supposed spirituality. So they were self-righteous. But we also know, according to Luke chapter 16, that these Pharisees were a stingy group of people. Luke describes them as lovers of money in chapter 16 and verse 14. They did not live generous, giving their wealth to the advancement of the kingdom of God. Instead, they lived a selfish life, accumulating for themselves as much wealth as they possibly could while passing it off as the blessing of God and not investing in actually seeing the kingdom of Jesus advanced. So they were selfish, they were stingy, they were self-righteous. But then thirdly, we would say they were slick individuals. They were slick. By this, I mean they would take the law of God and they would seek to dismantle it for their own personal benefit. And the Lord Jesus really does. He takes a verse of scripture here in this chapter and throws it right in front of their faces to remind them of how they are seeking to dismantle the word of God or water it down to better suit their own needs. And you can kind of see that in Luke chapter 16. It almost seems like a verse that is completely out of place. 
Look at Luke 16 and verse 18 and consider for a moment, Jesus has already said to everybody, you need to give as disciples for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. And now he's going to begin to focus on those who are stingy and say, you can be generous or you can live a stingy life and wind up in hell. And that's the big picture. But tucked right there in the middle, it's like, where did this verse come from? Verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. It's like, what's up with that verse? Y'all with me say yes? It's like, why is this verse, it almost seems inadvertently just slung in there. But what is Jesus doing? This is the unique thing. Jesus is highlighting the fact that they have sought to water down a biblical principle of God. And this is the one that he chose to use as the illustration. As a matter of fact, as you study uh, the culture in the times of the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 16, you will discover that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, the rabbis were involved in what was known as oral tradition. They would not only take the first five books of the Bible and read them and teach from them, but they would add to them. And in the concept of adding to them, they created a very lax law as it was concerning divorce. In fact, there was uh, one group of Pharisees known as the house of Shema who said a man should divorce his wife only because he has found grounds for it in unchastity. Another group of religious people called the house of Hillel said, even if the wife spoils the dish, you may divorce her. So you can see the lacks on that. It's like you burnt the toast, lady, you up out of him. Y'all all right? So there was that idea of divorce. And then another teacher came along and added something even more lax, saying even if a man finds someone prettier than his wife, he may divorce her. Now, husbands don't say anything. Can I get a witness on that? But this was the deal. They had so watered down the law of God, and they had done so so that they could take a very flippant, attitude towards marriage. And they literally saw marriage as something that could be created on a whim and also something that could be dissolved on a whim. So they were watering down the law of God. They were, in this case, very slick. Now, I preached on this concept uh, in the past. So I'm not going to spend time preaching uh, specifically on that idea, but if you want to check it out, it's in the Marriage in the Red series uh, concerning that particular verse. But for this principle, where Jesus is headed, the main truth is that he is going to show how Scripture actually goes against all three of those realities in a Pharisee's life. Those who thought themselves to be righteous by what they did or by what they did not do, Scripture says that there is no one righteous, no, not one. They were stingy, that is the Pharisees, because they did not serve God, but rather they served their own wealth. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, you cannot serve two masters. You're going to love one and despise the other, and you're going to despise one and love the other. And then they were slick at tinkering with the law of God, expounding upon it to suit their own personal desires. But Jesus said in verse 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. So the Lord Jesus elevates the fact that no matter how much they tinker with what God has said, no matter how much they seek to water down what the Lord has said, they cannot get rid of the law. It will not fail. It will always accomplish that for which it has been sent out. Now, 
Just so we kind of get a big picture. This is one reason I love preaching this way. Because we get the big picture of what's going on in Luke chapter 15 and verse 16. We've got to remember that Jesus has drawn a dividing line. He is placing on one side of the legal sheet of paper, so to speak, those who are of the kingdom of light, those who are followers of Jesus, uh, those who are within the kingdom of God. And then on the other side of the sheet of paper, so to speak, there are those who are of the kingdom of Satan. They are not sons of the kingdom of God. They are people of the darkness, not of the light. They are not followers of Jesus, but scoffers of the Lord Jesus. So there is this total contrast that we continue to see over and over in Luke chapter 15 and verse 16. And you remember, those who are members of the kingdom of light, those who have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, they experience some things in their life. They experience an ever-increasing love for Christ. They experience an ever-increasing generosity to give to the support of mission, uh, to make disciples. They experience a greater joy at the conversion of souls. So this is increasing in their life. They are increasing in love, increasing in generosity, increasing in joy. These are the followers of Jesus. But then on the other side are the followers of the devil, those who are members of the kingdom of darkness. And listen, if you're not following Jesus, you're following the devil. So they, they love themselves, they serve their own money, and they ostracize those people who are not like them. And Jesus has already given his disciples a parable to describe how they should be generous. And now he moves to tell another story of what happens to those who are not generous, but self-righteous, stingy, and slick. And in this story, we hear about the rich man. And this rich man is really a description, listen, of the Pharisee. So as I begin to read through this text again and begin to unpack it, you're going to find some great similarities of how this rich man actually is a picture of the pharisaical individuals in Jesus' day. And then Lazarus is a depiction of a person who has come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So three major principles. Here's the wild thing. I've preached Luke 16 several times, uh, the rich man and Lazarus specifically many times. And so whenever I went into the study a couple weeks ago, prior to heading to Myrtle Beach, uh, I spent time in study saying, all right, Lord, I don't want to just preach what I preached before, so help me to see clearly some principles here that will be helpful for our fellowship. And man, the Lord hooked me up with a few of them, so I'm going to share them with you this morning. Y'all with me say yes? So here they are. Principle numero uno uh, is simply this. Those who live for themselves die by themselves. Those who live for themselves die by themselves. Look in verse 19 again in the Bible. There was a rich man who habitually dressed in purple. Stop there for just a moment. I did not consider this verse when I put this shirt on this morning. Y'all all right? Somebody had reminded me after the first service, like, you know you're wearing purple, right? And I felt so convicted. But anyway. Rich man, habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every single day. Now, very quickly, the rich man, all right? Unique thing about the rich man in this particular text of Scripture. He is never given a name. So every single time Jesus speaks about him, he always just calls him a rich man. A rich man. So why is it that he has no name? Here's the reason. Because he needs no name. Those who go to hell don't need a name. Because in hell, there are zero relationships. So that's why there's no name here for this individual rich man. And then you see he's wearing purple clothing. 
And this elevates his status in the minds of those listening to the story. Purple was the color of great royalty. It's color of position. It was a color of wealth. And so from a mere human perspective, this man would have been viewed as highly educated, uh, highly connected, and extremely well off. He dressed in such a manner to outdo everyone. Every single day he would get up, he would get dressed in such a manner that he would impress everybody who was looking at him. We also know from this text he doesn't miss a meal, so he is fat, he's happy. His entire life was a display of his riches so that others could view them. And at this point in the story, all right, listen, you've got a rich man, habitually dressed in purple, uh, fine living every single day. The Pharisees would have identified with this man. They would have seen every single thing that was being described about this rich man right so far in the text as an individual who was blessed by God. They'd be like, look at all he has. Look at his financial situation. Look at his living situation. Look at all of his friends. Look at this. Look at that. He must be blessed by the Lord. The Pharisees would not only have automatically assumed that, but they also would have automatically identified with the man. But it said, that rich man, that's like us. And that's how the Pharisees lived. The Pharisees routinely dressed in such a way to draw attention to themselves. They routinely dressed with their man-made righteousness. And they would put it on every single day. And they would parade their man-made righteousness for every single person to see them and be impressed by them. And not only this, but they saw their wealth as God's blessings and therefore God's approval of their lives. Now think about this for just a moment. These individuals are living self-righteous lives, watering down the word of God, but in society they were highly elevated. Their finances were well taken care of. These Pharisees uh, were well-to-do. And so by their own estimation, they made the assumption that because they were well-off and taken care of and financially stable, that somehow God must be approving of their lifestyles. And so this was the mentality that began to grow out of the Pharisaical tradition. Some have even argued that the Pharisees are the very first individuals to begin the prosperity gospel, which is so prevalent in our culture today. Now, we know in the scripture that the rich man uh, had no mercy on those who were outcast of society. Now, as Jesus tells the story and begins to introduce the poor man, uh, the Pharisees may begin to say, not so, I don't, maybe I don't want to identify with this character. So look in the Bible again in verse 20. It says, And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which are falling from the rich man's table. And besides, even the dogs were coming in, licking his sores. Now, there's no indication that the rich man gave anything to the poor man. There's an obvious ostracizing of the poor individual. Uh, the rich man ignored him as a man who is unworthy to even speak to. And this was the attitude of the self-righteous Pharisee as well. They routinely pushed people away from them. They saw those who were poor as cursed by God and therefore condemnable in their own sight. And how often we witness the Pharisees and other religious people in the New Testament ignoring and refusing those individuals who are poor. And the description here 
It's, it's amazing. Jesus is phenomenal at drawing stark contrast. So he puts this rich man up and then the poor man, and there's nothing further separating the two than their societal issues. But this poor man is laid at the gate, gives indication he was unable to walk. So he was lame. And the Pharisees saw lame people in their day, deformed people, blind, lame, unable to speak, as cursed by God. This man uh, had sores. Most scholars believe that these sores are really a depiction of leprosy because those who had leprosy often had dogs who would come and literally uh, lick uh, their flesh, and the people would not even know it because leprosy deadens the skin. So this guy is sitting outside the gate, and those who have leprosy are considered unclean by the Pharisees. Stay away from them. They are sinners. And that was their attitude. So they always were pushing people out, ostracizing those who were unlike them. So this was the rich man. Had it going on? As far as the physical eye could tell, uh, then there's this poor man who was an absolute low-life loser from the physical eye vantage point. But the unique thing about both of them, specifically the rich man, is that while he would have lived his life uh, as a very intimidating figure walking through the town, People would have known him. They would have bowed down to him, looked away from him. He was intimidating. Uh, he could not intimidate death. Death came for him. So what the Bible says, verse 22, the last half there, the rich man died and was buried. Rich man died. His death opened the door to a loneliness that he had never experienced before. Verse 23, the Bible says, in Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment. And the term Hades here speaks of a place of eternal punishment reserved for those who reject the king of heaven, Jesus Christ. Matthew 16 and 18 uh, translates Hades as hell. So the bottom line is that this person died and he went directly to hell. Somebody might be like, that's right, all rich people wind up in hell. That's not the point here. The point is that those who, like the Pharisees, serve their wealth instead of serving God, wind up in hell. Those who choose the comfort of religiosity over the rigorousness of following Jesus will suffer the consequences of rejecting him for eternity. One pastor said it this way, there are a million ways to hell and only one way to heaven. When Jesus describes hell, the man describes hell in the text, Abraham describes hell also. But the amazing thing here is that when we study the Bible, and we are uh, for real students of the Word, there are some people who want to try to take hell and uh, make it a figure of speech. All right, so let's, let's take hell and let's make it not a place of eternal torment. Let's, let's just say it's uh, annihilation. So a person who dies, who's rejected Jesus, they're uh, just judged and done away with. Their life no longer exists. There is no eternity for them. It's like just darkness, a vapor, no longer around. So there's the annihilation idea, and many people ascribe to that. But how they can is be, I don't understand. Uh, no, if we are true students of the Word and read the Bible, 
and take it for what it actually teaches, all of us would come away with the reality that hell is eternal. So a person who goes into hell is not simply annihilated. A person who goes into hell spends eternity in hell suffering the consequences of their sin. Now, why is hell eternal? That's always been a, a huge question for me. Now, I'll shoot you straight. Y'all listen and say, yeah. I wish that it was just annihilation. That would be much easier to preach. But to get up uh, in our current culture and be like, if you reject Jesus, you're going to hell forever. People are like, good, you can't talk like that. That's exactly what they said about Jesus. But hell is forever because, listen, sin, which you commit, offends an eternal God. And God, who is eternal, pours out eternal punishment on you for your sin. Therefore, you are in hell for eternity, paying for the consequences of your sin, which offend an eternal God. And Jesus describes hell as eternal. All throughout the New Testament, the writers describe hell as eternal. So it's not just some annihilation theory. Jesus, in this text, by the way, describes, describes hell as a place of torment. Torment uh, means to experience continual torture accompanied with acute pain. It's a place of punishment. The man who is in hell, he describes hell as a place of agony. And the word means to be in absolute anguish and sorrow. In fact, there's a sense of constant distress. There's anxiety. He's filled with worry, panic attacks. He cries out for a little water. His thirst so great, just little mercy, but none is given. Abraham in this text describes hell as a place of permanence. Verse 26, he says, besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. So listen, there are a million ways to hell and only one way to heaven. There are a million ways to get into hell and there's no way to get out of hell. Bottom line is that this man had lived life for himself, rejecting the king of the kingdom. And after death, he was all alone. No one there to do his bidding like he was used to. I mean, how many times did this individual man sit at his table in his house, clap his hands and call for water, and the servants would come running? And yet after death, he can't get a single drop. How many times did this man in his house send out invitation to all of his rich buddies, all of his friends, and invite all of them over to his house so they could celebrate and have a huge feast? But in hell, no celebration. No friendship, no relationship, completely changed. No friends to carry on with him in lavish and exorbitant living. He is all alone. Now, remember, um, it's kind of wild, you know, sharing the gospel. Right? Y'all still with me? Say, yeah. So I shared the gospel with people <clears throat> and had the opportunity to tell them, you know, that you're going to spend eternity separated from God in hell if you don't repent and come to faith in Jesus. And as I speak about hell for just a moment, it's amazing how I've actually had people kind of barrel up their chest and in pride say, man, hell, that's where all my friends are going to be. That'll be all right. I'll be there with all my people. I'm like, that's the, you, you dumb, man. 
You're not going to be there with all your people. You're going to be there all by yourself in hell. Torment, agony, permanence. That's what hell's like. Now, the rich man, don't forget, he's a depiction of the religious people of Jesus' day. The rich man, as Jesus is speaking to him, is actually being used by Jesus as a warning to all of those who believe that their good works will get them into heaven. So Jesus was warning the Pharisees that they were living on the brink of hell. They were walking upon a thin glass which could crack at any moment and send them into eternal torment. So if they continue to live lives of self-righteousness, stinginess, they would be met with the judgment of God. If they continue to be slick with the law of God, they would face the grave consequences of its demands. And the Bible says that the law kills. The Spirit of God gives life. The law kills. And how many people today do we run into when sharing the gospel who think they're okay because of their good works? I'm a pretty good person, man. I'm not that bad of a sinner. They lay these things down and think, no, 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 I'm a pretty good guy. How many times have I had people come to me and say, hey, uh, preacher, uh, I'll tell you what, man. There's a guy who's been visiting a church. I don't know about his uh, soul. I don't know about his eternal destination. But I'll tell you this. He's a good guy. So? Oh, he's good. He must be good to go then. That's not what Scripture teaches, all right? His goodness is like filthy rags in the sight of Almighty God. I don't know if y'all are watching this on the television, but, uh, you know, we get the Discovery Channel. Y'all all all right? It's amazing what you can discover on that channel. (laughs) But right now, we watched it last night, this guy who is uh, the Skywalker. Have y'all seen this joker? He walks on the high wire. Very impressive, by the way. His grandfather, uh, which I was told after the first service, actually walked the high wire across the Tallulah Gorge. So now he is doing the same thing. He's supposed to walk on the Grand Canyon, across the Grand Canyon tonight, 8 o'clock, direct TV. (laughs) But no safety net, nothing like this. So we were watching it last night, Krista and I, and we were checking this guy out. And, man, he's got this long bar, no safety net. He's over in the Bahamas. He's walking across the Atlantis. They draw him this long cord. And so here he is balancing it, and he just steps out there one step at a time and goes like over 200 feet in, I mean, Air, high air. Y'all listening? If he falls, he dies. Y'all aren't getting the gravity of this moment. But this is serious stuff. Now, we're watching. My heart's beating. I'm like, this guy is going to die. But then it dawns on me. He can't die. He's coming on TV tomorrow night. So he's going to make it. But you're still nervous for him. But here he is. He's walking. He's walking. And then as I see him walking, I begin to... And this must just be the Baptist preacher of me thinking about the message I'm preaching today. How many people are teetering over hell on the wire? Think, we got their little balance thing. Oh, I'm going to church. I'm doing pretty good. Uh, hey, I, I was real nice this week. I, I, I was nice to my wife. I was nice to my kids. I, I'm a pretty good guy. Didn't do this, didn't do that. There's a wind coming, bro. It's called death. And if you think that you're going to teeter with this little thing over hell and somehow God's going to look at you and say, I just didn't realize you're so good. Come into heaven. This is not going to happen. 
Death will come, blow you over, and you will enter into hell forever. That's what happens to those who reject Jesus. And that's what this text teaches. It's what Jesus teaches. Very clear. Those who live for themselves die by themselves. Principle number two. Y'all still with me? Say yes. Those who come to Christ will be a part of heaven's family. Those who come to Christ will be part of heaven's family. So in this study, uh, looking at the rich man, I kind of saw who he was a picture of, and then I began to say, okay, who's this poor man? Who's he a description of? How do I get to the point that he is a depiction of an individual who's placed his faith in Jesus? So let me just kind of carry you through a train of thought here. Look at verse 16 in your Bible, Luke 16, 16. The Bible says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Now, the law and the prophets point to our sinfulness and our need of a savior, a Messiah. We need someone to bear our punishment and give us grace. John the Baptist is the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. John preached the preparation of the coming king. And then Jesus came, who was the king. And Jesus the king spoke about the good news or the gospel of the kingdom of light. And those who saw the glory of God the Father in the person of Jesus Christ wanted nothing to do with a works righteous system created by men. They were coming to Christ no matter what the cost. This is the idea of forcing themselves into the kingdom. It gives the imagery of a person making a decision for Christ and then being violently mistreated by others. But here's the unique thing. Those who find salvation in Christ could care less what other people think or do to them. And that was surely the case. Followers of Jesus cruelly punished for their faith, ostracized from the society they grew up in, often cut off from their families and thereby lost their family heritage and estate. They became poor, often because of severe beatings. They were racked with painful afflictions. So who is the poor man in the story? He would be a description of a person who entered the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ and was severely punished by society for that decision. But like the rich man, he died. Death was a door that opened to him, not an eternal separation, but rather to an eternal family in heaven. Unlike the rich man who had no name because he did not need one, the poor man had a name and would use it in his newfound relationships that he would have in heaven. More so, check this out, Jesus knew his name. Jesus called his name Lazarus. He had a relationship with the king of the kingdoms. And that's really the question. Y'all listening say yes? That's really the question. Here it is, right? Not so much do you know Jesus. The question is, does Jesus know you? Has he called your name? Has he called you out? Jesus said, and I like this, um, kind of helping me see it a little clearer now, but Matthew 10, 39, Jesus is like, he who has found his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. See, the rich man clung to his riches. He thought he had found his life, but in fact, he lost it. The poor man lost his life on the earth, but in fact, he found his life. See, those who come to Christ die to self. They will be given life with God in heaven. Those who come to Christ will be part of heaven's family. But the poor man in the text, not the main character in the story. The rich man is, which leads us to principle number three. Those who refuse to repent will not be saved. Those who refuse to repent will not be saved. Verse 27 through 31 again. And he said, now check this out, all right? This is the guy from hell. I beg you, Father, speaking to Abraham, 
Send him to my father's house. I have five brothers in order that they may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now check it out. The man in hell, after realizing he wasn't getting out, became greatly concerned for the life of his brothers. It is amazing the perspective that we have from this man who is in hell. The rich man called Abraham his father, which by the way, the only person who would do this is a person of Jewish descent, which was a reminder to all of the Pharisees who were listening who are of Jewish descent that just because you're Jew doesn't mean you're going to heaven. And then he asked them to send somebody to warn his brothers. And in a real sense, the Pharisees listening to Jesus share the story, should have been paying extremely close attention. And here's the deal. Here's what Jesus is getting at. Are y'all listening? Say yes. Here's what he's getting at. Hell is populated by religious people. That's what he's getting at. And to go a step further, he's saying hell is populated by religious people who are even kin to you. It's a warning. And Abraham assured them, they got Moses, they got the prophets, they should listen to the truth of Scripture. The law points to our sin. The prophets promise redemption in a Messiah king. The rich man knew that his brothers wouldn't listen to Scripture, so he says, send somebody from the dead. Abraham's like, even if somebody from the dead goes to them, they're not going to pay attention. And isn't that true? Look at the preacher. How many people, even in the context of just going to the birth of the New Testament, after the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus... When Jesus showed himself to over 500 people, how many even in the book of Acts would hear about the resurrected Lord and still reject him? Still want nothing to do with him. It's like he just got up from the dead, man. Pay attention. That's what the text is saying. If they don't listen to Moses, who had the law which shows us we are sinners... If they don't listen to the prophets who said there's one who is coming who's going to die for the sin of humanity and be resurrected, if they don't pay attention to that, they surely won't pay attention even if somebody gets up from the dead and tells them. And, um, you know, I think about this on sharing the gospel with individuals and how many times I've shared the gospel with somebody and uh, always running to the resurrection, all right? That's kind of where I race to. So when I get into the gospel and begin to share about sin and, and penalty of sin, which is hell, and talk about, though, the love of God that so loved the world that he sent Jesus to die for your sins, he was buried, he was resurrected. And then I talk about the resurrection and how if the resurrection is true, then you better pay attention to what Jesus said. Now, if the resurrection isn't true, then we don't really have to pay attention to it because he's just another dead man. But if he got up from the dead, you better listen. So here I am, and I point to the resurrection, and people are like, hell, God wouldn't send somebody. How could a loving God send people to hell? How, how could he do it? That, that's the typical question uh, that I often get. How can a loving God send people to hell? And the uh, bottom line is, uh, a loving God sent a Savior. You chose hell. You rejected God. Loving God doesn't have to redeem anybody. But he sent Jesus. It's like, no greater love has any man than this, that he would lay down his life. So he dies. Talk about the resurrection. 
encourage people to repent and still do it, doing it today. Y'all all right with that? So preaching on Sundays, encouraging people to repent and come to faith in Jesus and somebody be like, well, man, I just don't believe that's how God is. I, I just don't believe God sent people to hell. I don't believe God just made one way to get into heaven. Just don't think that's how God is. Well, you ain't read the Bible then because that's how God is. And here's the deal. Some people are like, I read it, man, but I just don't like, I don't like it. Make up your own God then. That's what a lot of people have done. They'll whittle themselves a little God, put ears on him so he can hear their prayers, put a mouth on him so he can speak to them, put uh, feet on him so he doesn't fall over. They'll create their own little God in their own little image and say, this is my God, this is who I worship. Or they'll say, no, 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 here's what my life's all about, all about me, all about getting as much as I can, getting the best that I can out of this life. And then they die and go to hell. And it ain't because God doesn't love you. God loves you. And here's the thing. I think y'all would agree with me on this. Uh, Jesus, I'll ask y'all. This is when y'all respond. All right? Jesus, most compassionate person to ever walk the planet. Yes? Without a doubt. And yet Jesus taught more about hell than any other person. Every one time he mentioned heaven, he mentioned hell three times. So this compassionate, this loving Savior, this prophet, priest, resurrected king, Lord of lords, is warning, listen, you. Hell is one breath away. If you don't come to Christ, you'll spend eternity being rejected. But you still have opportunity. And here's the awesome thing, too, man. The Bible's like, uh, and this is Jesus, you know. Y'all with me, yeah? Here, here's how he rolls. He, he says it like this. He says, uh, anyone who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul the Apostle writes, today's the day of salvation. It's like some people sitting out there, they're going, when's a good day for me to get saved? Today. Good day for you to be saved. Why would you continue to teeter on the wire when one wind can put you into hell? Makes no sense to me. So be saved. Let's bow. Father, uh, speak to hearts.